The following sermon is from Redemption Bible Church of New Braunfels, where we are proclaiming the authority of God's Word without apology, in order to fulfill the Great Commission in the spirit of the Great Commandment. Turn in your copy of God's Word now to Philippians 2, 1 through 11. Philippians 2, 1 through 11. You'll find Philippians in your New Testament and all those uh, funny sounding names there to the churches in those uh, cities. But that's where we are. We're picking back up in our durable series, walking verse by verse through Philippians, written by the Apostle Paul. Uh, we took a break there during Christmas for uh, uh, to have a great message to end the year uh, and uh, coming to the Lord and a message there to begin our week last week as we focused back in and we reoriented our heart and mind uh, to this pillar of prayer and the priority of prayer in, in our life. And so did y'all have some good times of prayer this week? Did you, were you having just a jump start to your time with the Lord? I hope so. I hope we had a great time in our small group, uh, just praying together. And um, I hope that it's been that same uh, way in your life. But now we're back to Philippians and we'll continue to walk through it verse by verse up to Easter. Um, if you're new with us, if you've maybe just come once or a couple times and you missed the chapter one and those messages through there, you'll find them online on our website, on Facebook. You can watch them or through our podcast and you can go back to that. But we pick up in chapter two this morning. And let me just begin by saying this text is massive. It's, it's massive for us. It's massive for a preacher to, to, to come to it. for the uh, And it's not just because it's 11 verses. It's not just because of the length of content, but because of the ground that it covers uh, in these 11 verses. There's the deepest of humiliation in this verse. There's the highest of exaltations and the most life-altering of implications for uh, those who follow Christ and would seek to follow the commands in these verses. They're massive. They're mighty and bound in these verses is really the hope of all humanity. For found in these uh, verses is the solution to every problem, the fix for every issue, even the lamentable events of this past week, of the past year. For found in these verses is Christ. And to the unbelieving mind, what uh, we're called to do in these verses seems ludicrous, seems impossible. And to, to our own flesh, these verses seem counterintuitive, even destructive. For that is really what they do, in fact. For these verses crush every self-exalting, self-preserving, self-centered impulse that exists in our being. For each of those impulses is crushed under the weight of the glory of Jesus Christ. And so as we sit under them, as they crush us, God here is teaching us how to be durable and how to have a durable humility. He's taught us how to live a life that is worthy of the gospel of Christ with joy and purpose and peace and focus and meaningful relationships and fruitful labor for the advancement of the gospel. And even as he begins to teach us these past things in the text this morning, it, uh, it can seem impossible. To our pride, though, it maybe seem like, no, we can do this. You know, if everyone would just get on my agenda then, and, and just align themselves with my way of thinking and my way of doing, then we would really get somewhere, right? We think that in our business, right, with our coworkers. We think that in our own marriage. You know, if my wife would just do things the way that I do them and think the way that I think, then, man, this marriage would be rock solid. Sorry, honey. We think it in our, with our kids, right? Our kids would just obey me and do what I've asked them to do. 
and their life would turn out and they would, we, they would really make it in life. And to this way of thinking and to all these issues and to all the things that are happening, Christ inserts himself and comes along and he shows us a better way. He shows us the way of humility. And so now I've set these verses up to be pretty impactful. And so we should probably read them, shouldn't we? We should let God speak for himself through his word. So join me. Hopefully your Bible's open. We'll pick it up in Philippians 2, verse 1, and I'm going to read our passage. And so follow along. Let the impact of them really sink in as I read it. It says this, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind and having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confessed that Jesus Christ is found passage of scripture, such a, a, a really a life-altering uh, truths found in here, life-altering commands and a life-altering example if we would just follow these commands, these examples. But even as we read it, we've jumped into a flow of thought here that the Apostle Paul has been laying out for us. It began back in, in uh, chapter 1, verse 27, which is a few weeks ago, so I just want to uh, refresh us and bring us back to that. It began with this kind of overarching statement to say, where he said, to let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. And from there, he urged the church, those Philippian believers, and us as well, to unity against the attacks that exist outside the body of Christ outside the church, that we are to stand together, we are to strive together, we're not to be afraid, we're to be willing to suffer all for the sake of Christ. But then he gets into chapter 2 here in the passage that I just read, and it's flowing out of that, that a life worthy of the gospel is also united because of attacks inside the church of how we treat one another and what we do uh, both unintentionally and intentionally to divide us, to cause discord. And so he begins to instruct us then on how to be unified uh, and how to stand together as believers and then gives us the greatest example and explains how any of this is possible. And so how do, we, how do we then come to a passage like this and how do we summarize it? How, what point is Paul making? What character trait then defines a life worthy of the gospel? Well, it's the character trait of humility. And we could summarize it like this. If you're taking notes, write it down or you can pull out your phone and take a picture of the screen here. But it, it, we could summarize it this way, that humility is the answer for humanity's affliction. It is the way of humility that solves every problem. 
It is the way of humility that fixes our horizontal uh, discord, that which threatens the unity in the church and in our marriages and in our friendships and in, in our lives. It is humility that ultimately was the cure as Christ lowered himself and was the fix and the solution for our vertical separation from the Father. It was humility that drove Christ down to this earth and fixed our rebellion against God that could uh, be one of the most studied, picked apart, and analyzed texts in all of our New Testament. Because we have to get Christ right and if we're going to get the gospel right. If we misunderstand who Christ is and the implications therein, then we would, can miss out on what salvation truly is. And so with humility then in mind and humility as the goal and humility as the theme of this passage, what does the Lord have to teach us about it? If humility is the solution, well, here's the first point, that unity is impossible without humility. If what we are going for is peace and unity and camaraderie and harmony of mind, then we must exhibit humility. Said another way, humility produces unity. Without humility, there cannot be unity, particularly amongst believers. And so he uses some interesting language here. As you look at verse 1 with me, he uses some interesting language to kind of bring this truth to light. He begins by saying, so if, and then he lists four things, encouragement in Christ, comfort from love, participation in the spirit and sympathy and affection and he lists these four things to say uh, uh, if these things are true then be unified and he gets us to ask him to ask these questions and as christians we say well yeah these are true right the, 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 these are true, and so we could rightly say, well, since they're true or because they're true, these things, uh, these four things are, are true of us, and it's like, exactly, then be unified. Then be joined together, then be harmonious uh, uh, together, and so it, it's as if he's saying, hey, if you're saved, then be united, be of the same mind, same love, same spirit, and the same mind. Again, if, if these things are true... If saved believers, if as Christians we have an encouragement with Christ, or the word literally means to come alongside. If uh, Christ has come alongside us and walked in our life and uh, paved the way for us, and now even uh, as, as he uh, goes before us and interceding for us, he comes alongside and there's encouragement. There's comfort in his love, isn't there? That today if you are a Christian, you are safe and secure in his love, fully, completely, and freely in the love of Christ why we end every service by saying you are loved if that is true then be united if there's any fellowship or it says participation but literally that word fellowship the, uh, in this if we have this fellowship with the spirit in us and be unified the same spirit who gives us an affection and sympathy who, who who intercedes for us when we don't know what to pray who is working in us and causing us to uh, be assured of our salvation and crying out abba father to the lord if these things are true, then be unified. And there's really kind of two senses here. As he's pointing us uh, vertically to the Lord in this, these things are true. But here's the thing. Uh, every saved person in this room and across the globe, these things are true as well. And so there's a sense in which we share this encouragement and comfort and love and uh, fellowship and affection and sympathy horizontally together. And because these things are true, then, then we are united. And this completes his joy. If these things are true, then complete his joy by being united. 
See, as a pastor, as a, uh, the Apostle Paul who helped to plant that church and who had a deep affection for these people, he's saying, complete my joy by being unified. This is what pastors work for. This is what church leaders uh, work for, is for peace and harmony and unity in the spirit amongst God's people. For when there's fighting and discord and, 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 and selfish ambition that is, that is prevalent, this is what weighs on those who love and lead the people of God. That's why the writer of Hebrews tells, the, uh, tells us in, in Hebrews 13, 17, he says, Obey your leaders, submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who have to give an account. That's a weighty responsibility, y'all. That's the kind of responsibility that keeps me up at night. But, he's, but he goes on then to say, well, let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. See, there's no greater joy than when God's people are existing in unity. And so what does it look like? We've referred to it. It looks like, as he says in verse 2, here of having the same mind. Well, what does that mean? The same mind means uh, not necessarily in belief or doctrine, but in seeking to understand the perspective of other people. It, it's, the, it's, not a, it's not just a, everybody sharing the same doctrinal beliefs, which is true, and that's a part of our unity. But the sense here of being of the same mind is, is learning to see from, the, uh, from another's perspective. It's why Peter in 1 Peter 3 tells, uh, tells husbands to live with your wives in an understanding way. My wife can quote it. <laughs> find ourselves at odds with somebody who's somebody when we can't understand them if they are a believer we must seek to be of the same mind and know why do they think this way see feeling misunderstood and being misunderstood is a is a leading cause in fractured relationships and fractured churches and fractured marriages in those instances where we insist on our own way where we demand our opinion, when we're unable to see another's perspective and unwilling just to even take a few steps in another person's shoes. When we are of the different minds, it leads to discord, but of the same mind, it leads to unity, and it is humility that takes us there. It's being of the same mind and of the same love, a love that is unconditional a love that is impartial and doesn't show preference to others, a love that lays itself downward to be of the same love that Christ showed us. And then it goes to say, and being of full accord. The Bible might say united in spirit. It's uh, literally could be translated one sold, one mind, one loved, one sold here. It's a selfless harmony. And then it comes back to one mind. It's like a full circle in unity there in, in, in verse. We to get ahead ourselves, but joyfully giving what we have so that others can grow and pursue Christ and to get ahead. You know, who can read these verses, verses 3 and 4? Look at them, just glance at them for a second. Who can, who can read these verses and say, you know what? I've got that pretty well figured out. I've got that mastered. Well, even to say so, to think so, is to violate them. Humility must define us if unity is to be achieved among us. If we are to stand firm, if we're to strive together, if we're to be of the same mind, love, and soul, then redemption, we must lay aside our selfish ambitions. It doesn't mean we can't have ambition. That means it doesn't mean we can't be proactive. That means that we can't be entrepreneurial. We can't take the lead. That we can't be uh, that we can't be aggressive in things. But it's not so that we can just simply get ahead without any regard for anybody else. We must lay aside selfish ambition, and we must lay aside conceit of thinking too highly of ourselves. 
of thinking that we know best, that our way is the best way, that we have everything figured out. We must lay aside that. We must lay aside just merely looking out for our own interests. I have to get ahead. I have to succeed. It is all about me. We must lay those thoughts. We must lay those actions aside and pick up then humility. Humility, which is defined just simply as Christ-like lowliness. Christ-like lowliness. See, since the beginning, this is not news to you, but since the beginning of humanity, personal agendas, oversized pride, personal promotions have torn apart churches. They've destroyed marriages, split friendships, and divided nations. And so church, what is it that keeps us in the car? What is it that as we are journeying through life together, as we are riding down the highway of life with these people, what keeps us from bailing out of the car when somebody changes the radio station or, 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 or somebody crowds our space and takes their armrest or puts their drink in your cup holder or somebody says something hurtful? What keeps you from bailing out the car? It's humility. Humility keeps us in the car. In Christ. Because see, here's the thing. We've got this statement. Humility is the answer for all of humanity's uh, afflictions. And so if we're to be, uh, one of those being our division, our selfish interests, and so if we want unity, it must be, uh, we must pursue humility. But here's the second point. Humility is impossible without Christ. Humility is ultimately impossible without Christ. Christ. See, this mind, this way of thinking, this way of living has been given to us in Christ. Look at verse 5. He says, have this mind among yourselves. This way of thinking, he says, have this among yourselves, which has been given you, is yours, rather, in Christ Jesus. Do you see that in verse 5? Like it's laid right before us. It's ours for the grasping. If we're going to grasp at anything, grasp at Christ and Christ-like humility. It's been given to you. What a gift of grace. Because we're bent towards getting ahead. We're bent on thinking about ourselves. And now Christ has said, here, it's yours in me. And after this, in verses 6 to 8, leading out of that, then is where Paul takes us on the downward descent to the greatest humiliation ever on the face of the earth. The greatest condescension that has ever happened. It's really the truth that we just celebrated at Christmas, isn't it? That God, the second person of the Trinity, there, Christ became man and dwelt among us, Right? He came come and live on this earth. It's what we call the incarnation, isn't it? The greatest of all humiliations, the greatest of all condescension. See, now prior to his coming, Jesus existed in heaven as God, didn't he? Which is what the text says. He says, have this mind uh, uh, among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus in verse 5. You see it? Yeah? It says, though, speaking of Christ, who, uh, though he was in the form of God, which is referring to before he came in heaven. See, let's get this right. Like uh, Jesus existed in heaven as God. You get that, right? Fully, truly, completely. He, he was the radiance of the glory of God before the foundation of the world. There at creation, all throughout Old Testament history and human history, he has existed in the form of God, full of glory and majesty. And so when it says this, uh, this in the form of God, it's what he, he's not necessarily referring to like his physical being, but in essence, in his existence, he was fully God. 
In his mind and in his attitude then existed this eternal humility, a willingness to be made low. Though he was in the form of God, there existing in heaven, he did not count equality with God, his deity as a thing that had to be grasped and not let go. But rather, he was willing to be made low. He didn't just cling to his, uh, his deity. He didn't cling to the majesty that came to it like a, a child clutches her new Christmas toy. But rather, he let it go and emptied himself, as verse 7 says. It's not that when he came to earth, he stopped being God. It's not that as he came to earth and was born as a baby and lived as a man that he lost all of his godly attributes, but that as he was revealed here, he revealed his existence or his essence as God in a new form, the form of a human slave. All of his, the glory of his deity, a mystery beyond mysteries, was veiled in human flesh as he came and lived here on this earth. And not only to live as a human being, but he emptied himself and he took on not just the form of any old human, but the form of a slave, of a servant, of what is often thought as the lowest of human existence. There's nowhere more clearly seen of Christ's servitude than in John 13. Before he would go to the cross, there in the upper room with his disciples, he takes off his robe and he puts on the servant's towel and he begins to wash the dirty disciples' feet. And now we think of this, and I mean, if we were to say, hey, we're going to wash your neighbor's feet right now, your spouse, your friend, your kids who you came with, or some of the, you know, the person you don't know that well that's sitting next to you, like, that's kind of gross, right? We don't know where they've walked. We don't know what they've been. Maybe you can even smell something right now that's coming from their feet. But just imagine in the first century, wearing sandals, walking through the The lowest on the totem pole would wash a guest's feet as they would come over for dinner. And here, our God, the King of the universe, washes His disciples' feet. Not only did he leave heaven to become a man, but he took on the form of a servant, embodied the essence, existed here as a servant, living his life with purpose so that others might be saved. He did really the unthinkable. But don't miss what's been being said here in verses 7 and 8. It says, but, but Christ here emptied himself. And then in verse, uh, verse 8 again, he being found in human form, he humbled himself. See, nobody forced Christ to come and do this. It wasn't like the, you know, the three members of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit, were sitting up there at the table and, you know, in the head in the heavenly throne, and they're like, well, somebody's got to go fix that mess, so let's draw straws. And, you know, you know, Christ is like, well, I guess I have to go. Christ willingly, joyfully, and purposefully left heaven to take on human flesh to humble himself so that we might be saved. This is our God. This is our Savior, church. This is the answer to fix the most horrendous of problems. In your life, it is walking the way of humility, of making ourselves low, Christ-like lowliness. 
And now when we think of humility, we think of it in, in like as a negative attribute, don't we? Like in our own mind, culturally speaking, we think of this as uh, humility as something that defines the weak and the wimpy, that defines somebody without any self-respect or out any dignity. And yet, church, don't miss this. This is a crowning characteristic of our God. A crown jewel amongst many of his attributes, uh, next to his holiness, uh, likely, but in, not, in, not in, in, in any sort of conflict with his holiness. A crowning characteristic of our God and the only solution to humanity's affliction. So we are hopeless and helpless without it. Unable to fix anything, unable to get ahead, and yet, and yet Christ in his, in his humility, it led him straight to the cross, the ultimate low point of his humiliation. See, he didn't just come and live as a human. He didn't just come and take on the form of a slave, being born in the likeness of men, but he humbled himself, verse 8 says, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Not just to die a nice, peaceful death, but the most violent and undignified of deaths our Savior died. The lowest point of His humiliation from heaven to the grave. Here now the Creator of life humbly giving up His life. No greater lowering has ever happened. Whatever lowering you or I must do to serve our spouse or to serve a co-worker or to love a neighbor... Whatever lowering you and I must do to put to death our preferences is minuscule compared to what Christ has done for you and I. And this, beloved, is the gospel. This is the good news of Jesus Christ, what he did that we might be saved. This is the truth that we confess. This is the truth that we believe in that saves us for all eternity and is the solution for how we live a hopeful and a help-filled life with the Holy Spirit. It's by confessing, God, I've tried to do this on my own. I can't do it on my own. I, I don't have all the answers. I don't know everything. But yet, Christ, you humbled yourself. And now I humble myself and say, apart from Christ, I can't be saved. I can't do anything. The more we grasp this, the more we grasp what Christ has done, the greater then our worship becomes, the greater we come before the Lord with humility and contrite in spirit and trembling at his word so that our, our worship becomes that much sweeter. We understand that we can't even live this life uh, apart from Christ. But as we look to Christ's example, then suddenly we're empowered to do exactly what uh, verses 1 through 4 call us to do. Suddenly we have the help that we need as our humility grows, our unity is maintained, and Christ is rightly honored and exalted among us. Which is ultimately, humility is impossible without Christ, and so, uh, so is uh, unity and honor apart from what Christ has done. And so what is he teaching us here in verses 9 through 11? It's that this, it's that in God's kingdom, the way up is down. This is counterculture. In the marketplace, we climb ladders. In athletics, we beat our opponents. In politics, we push our agenda. But in Christ's kingdom, the way to honor, the way to greatness, the way to win is to make yourself low. Because Christ went to the extreme in humiliation, then the Father highly exalted him. Look at it in verse 9. He's connecting because of what Christ did, because of his lowering, because of his humility, because of his condescension. Condescension, rather, not condensation. That's happening outside. <laughs> Therefore, 
God has highly exalted or literally super exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. It's almost like it's like pictured as a rubber band that the farther you stretch that rubber band down and the more tension and the lower and lower it goes. And then when you let it go, the higher it shoots up into the sky. And as Christ went to the lowest of, of, of lows, he was skyrocketed to the highest of highs in exaltation. And so what honor, what greatness, what exaltation did Christ receive? He received a name. And so what name did he receive? He received the name of Lord. With no one. The name that makes him unique and set apart. The name that he does not share in any of his attributes, but that he is Lord. And so let's be clear. It's not as though after Jesus died and, and rose again from the grave and then ascended into heaven 40 days later. It is not as if Christ received a new name like a bride receives at her wedding day. No, Christ had always had the name. But now, amongst all of creation, we acknowledge him with our lips that Jesus Christ is Lord. And at his name then, at this name then, every knee, every knee should bow in heaven and earth and under the earth. All of God's created being will bow the knee and confess this truth. It's what we confess in our salvation, right? At Christ, you are my master. It's what we confess in baptism, that Christ is our Lord, He's our Master, that Jesus is God and I'm His servant and I'm, uh, my life is submitted to following after Him. It's what we confess here and now in verse 10 points us to a day when all, a future day when all of creation will do this. A day spoken of in Isaiah 45, 23. It's a quotation from here. In, in, in Isaiah 45, if you haven't read it uh, recently, make it a point to read it in your time with the Lord this week. It's a profound, profound chapter. It's as one pastor says, he says the 45th chapter Isaiah of Isaiah is the Old Testament's most forthright and forceful statement of God's sovereign rule in history and salvation. Four times uh, he, God will declare his absolute sovereignty and it is of these statements now that Paul rightly applies these to Jesus where every created being will one day bow the knee to Christ and confess him as Lord. And so if you have not, let me just ask, why not now? How much sweeter to humble yourself now than to be humbled later under the mighty hand of God. See, humble yourself and you will be exalted. The way up is down. Or you can be humbled and then opposed by God. Peter warns of this, 1 Peter 5, he says, Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. It's almost as if, like metaphorically speaking, every morning we put on a dose of humility. So you go to put on your shirt and your pants, uh, just quote this verse yourself, Lord, help me today to put on humility. Humility toward one another, laying ourselves low, seeking unity, seeking the uh, advance of, the, of others. It says, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time, he, that is God, may exalt you. Whatever accolades you might receive now, whatever titles you might receive, whatever promotions, whatever uh, uh, resources you may receive now that you think exalts you, how much greater is the exaltation that God will give to his children in the last day? Jesus warns about the last days in Matthew 23, in verse 12. Days where power is a thing to be grasped and cannot be conceded. 
where personal agendas are pushed with aggression at all costs, where everyone is wise in their own eyes and anyone who thinks differently is to be vilified. These are haunting verses. But for those who walk with a limp, those who've been humbled by Christ, or those who are seeking unity in Christ and the good of their neighbor, then these are hopeful words. Jesus Christ is Lord. End of story. Problem solved. Questions answered. Our paths paved. Jesus will be exalted, and he is exalted as we sing this, as we confess this, as these are the words that are on our lips in our salvation and throughout our lives. Christ will be exalted, not me, not you. But church, this way of humility is the way that we are called to live. It's a defining characteristic. It is the way uh, to live a life worthy of the gospel gospel of Jesus Christ, if this was a characteristic of Christ that we might be saved, how much more should we then, as we live a life worthy, emulating, picturing the gospel, a life of humility in these days? And I challenge us as we seek to live this out and just to watch the effect that it has on the people around us, to watch the gospel at work as we lay ourselves low, Christ-like lowliness amongst one another, saying, Christ is Lord, and I am his servant. And ultimately, this is, like I said, what we proclaim with our life, and it is what we proclaim in the waters of baptism. And so what an awesome uh, celebration that we have this morning even to have on display a life, uh, two lives that have been uh, laid low before the Christ, two, uh, two lives that are saying, Jesus is my Lord. Going beyond just like the acknowledgement of this, like the truthfulness of it, like, well, yeah, Christ is a Lord, but of two people to say, Jesus is my Lord, my Savior. Apart from him, I can't do anything. What a joy it is to get this picture here as a way to encourage us even as we seek to live a life humbled under the mighty hand of Christ. Would you pray with me? I'm really uh, humbled now even just to read.